0: Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. I want you to imagine with me, if you can, uh, the kind of pain and fear felt by the typical gay person growing up. Particularly in a religious home. I mean, you're 13, you're 14, everyone around you has beginning or has already begun to talk about the opposite sex. And you may be thinking, why do I feel that way? Uh, In fact, you find yourself more and more being attracted to the same sex. And as you get older, you think, is this ever going to go away? And maybe you have the language yet. Maybe you don't have the language yet. But the question that is is haunting you is, is, am I gay? What am I going to do? And am I all alone in this? And perhaps maybe even you've prayed and you've you've asked God, um, you know, can you will you take this away from me? And nothing changes. And uh, and instead of finding a a safe place in the church, you hear words like abomination. Uh, You feel degraded by phrases thrown around under the guise of humor. And you think to yourself, one thing is for sure: um, if I'm going to tell anyone, it's not going to be in this church. It's my hope as a community, as, as those who want to follow Jesus, that we would be very, very thoughtful, humble, compassionate on our views about sexuality and gender in general, in general, and our th- thoughts on same-sex relationships specifically. And it would be my hope that we would be very aware um, of the church's history. And how they've failed to represent Jesus to the gay community, and more to the point, perhaps consider your own individual thoughts, attitudes, jokes, bumper stickers, circle of friendships, and how those have failed to represent Jesus. The church is called to be a salt. is called to be salt and light. Uh, it's called to pursue, to love, to bring in, to show the un- unconditional love of Jesus, but unintentionally or unintentionally the church has, has shunned the gay community. And this is particularly painful as you think about uh, youth growing up in the church. Roughly right now among Gen Z, 20% identify as LGBTQ+. Youth are craving two things, early in their teen years, acceptance, Later in their 10 years, it becomes identity. Who am I becoming? And the community that they choose will be the dominant factor in their primary identity as an individual and eventually behavior. It works something like this, that your community forms your identity, your thoughts about who you are. And and that eventually affects um, your behavior. I mean, this is a well-documented reality amongst uh, social scientists. So if you grow up in an environment like the church, And you are same-sex attracted and you don't feel like you can talk to anyone, what's really going on, you are unlikely uh, to choose the church as your community and when you will go looking for another place of acceptance. And again, the place of your community is what forms your identity, it forms your thoughts about who you are, which eventually affects how you interact with the world. Churches, like I said, are typically places that have pushed away same-sex attracted youth. But what if we are a place where they felt safe to tell us exactly what's going on? And uh, one of the things that Jubilee is always lived by, because we see this in the pages of Scripture, particularly the life of Jesus and the example put forth by the Apostle Paul, is that um, um, that we want to offer people who don't belong to the church, people who don't believe what we believe, we want to, to offer them a sense of belonging before they believe and before they behave. And so for years, we've, you know, we've talked about things like this, like, you know, and some churches have failed in, in these ways as well, which we're trying to avoid that error. It's not like, hey, look, if, you, if, you, if you're this kind of person, you, know, you have tattoos, if you don't act the way we act, and if you don't believe what we believe, you can't really be in here. We wanna know that you believe what we believe. We wanna know that you behave the way we behave, and then you can belong. But that's not the example we see of Jesus. That's not the example we see in the New Testament, is that belonging comes first and then belief and then behaving. And today, the, the question uh, that we're answering, uh, is your church affirming? We're in this series called Reply All, and I'm answering some common questions that I get from new Christians or people exploring Christianity. And this is, this is a big one. In fact, when I did a series four years ago called You Asked For It, um, the, the question you asked for me to answer, the number one answer by far, um, was on... Um, same-sex relationships, and in fact, there wasn't even another answer. I mean, that was basically it. We had to make up another four or five to fill out the series. But this is a huge, huge topic. And so the question is, is your church affirming? And the question is meaning to ask, do we as a church, uh, do we affirm that same-sex relationships are part of God's vision for humanity? And while I will, will, will answer that question, I want to more acknowledge, in fact, this is where my heart is, how poorly the church... Uh, in America has treated the gay community and express my desire that this place, Jubilee Church, uh, be a place where it's okay not to be okay, and where, and where people who have serious struggles and questions get serious answers and solutions, and I believe that they can find that in the person of Jesus Christ, and that we would unconditionally love people, regardless of what they believe, that we'd unconditionally love people because Christ has unconditionally Loved us, And I, I just want to say this at this point as well, is that it's very possible. In fact, it's a trap to get your theology right, but yet, uh, but yet totally miss Jesus. And, and we, we can often be like, oh, it's really important to get truth right. But actually, you can get truth right and get Jesus wrong. Jesus said so. He's, in John 5, he t- told the Pharisees, he's like, hey, you know, you study the scriptures in vain. And boy, did they study the scriptures. They had the entire Old Testament memorized. Um, they didn't need a Bible app because they just could recite it in their head. Um, and he says, you search the scriptures in vain because they don't lead to me. And so it's very impossible. That it's, v- it's very important to not just get... Uh, theology right, but to get tone right. And I'm just gonna give some disclaimers in the beginning of this talk, mainly just to save my rear. Uh, but the what first, first disclaimer is like, this gets posed as, as non-affirming affirming. And, and, I, and it's even in the, how we posed the, the title. But I wanna talk about a historic versus a progressive because there's a lot of reasons for that. Number one is that, man, there's a lot that I would want to affirm about my gay friends people who are close to me. And there's a lot that I'd want to not affirm about how the church has handled things. So in this talk, I'm not going to talk about affirming, non-affirming. I'm going to talk about historic versus progressive. And for 1,960 years, all major denominations, including Catholic, Anglican, Orthodox, and the 50,000 Protestant denominations, have all agreed on this, on the, this sexual ethic, which is called the historic sexual ethic. And, and for those who have heard me speak before. Been around this church for a while. Are not going to be surprised um, that we hold to the historic view of sexuality. But what you may not know is why. And what I want to do today, and, and in some ways tomorrow. By the way, I made a game time decision to make this talk two parts because there was too much to say. Um, uh, so it's going to be this week and next week. In fact, we have a a, a number you can text if you've got questions. You're like, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about that? And I've heard this, and I've heard that. Text those, and that will inform, um, in part, what I say next week. Uh, so go ahead and text those questions if you have them. Uh, and on that note, this this today, I'm sorry. This is going to feel a little uh, technical, a little a matter of fact. It's going to feel more like a like a maybe a university lecture um, uh, f- from someone without a graduate degree. So it may not even be a very good one. And so. Um, but it's going to be a little bit technical, a little matter of fact, and I hope that you would give give this some thought as we weigh through a very, very important topic. And while I have a conviction around this issue, and you'll see why, man, I hold it with so much humility. And I think the second thing, and I hope that you would too, the second thing is, this is not the first word on this, and this is not the final word on this. We've talked about uh, same-sex relationships and other uh, messages, and, and it's mainly been about heart and approach, and, and we'll continue to talk ab- about same-sex relationships as a part of God's uh, plan. And um, it w- this isn't the final word. The third uh, little disclaimer I'm going to make is that I'm going to focus in on same-sex relationships and won't get into uh, gender issues. Uh, fourthly, this issue, this issue is personal to me. Uh, there are people that I love and f- would fiercely defend uh, if anybody tried to hurt them, um, and so it's very personal uh, to me. People who are gay, and um, but we disagree. But I, I'm saying that to say I'm not relationally detached from this because as I get into some very technical things, this is not this is not something that is impersonal to me in the least. And, and the fifth thing I want to do as a way of of uh, disclaimer is I want to give you some book recommendations because, like I said. I'm not going to get into all your questions and, and, and answers even today and next week, uh, but there's some people who've thought uh, thoroughly about this that I would commend to you. The first one is A People to Be Loved by Preston Sprinkle. Uh, he's, talk, he's talked at one of our leadership conferences, and he's great with scholarship, and he's got a great tone to what he has to say. Um, second book is What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality by Kevin DeYoung. His scholarship is exceptional. His tone is not as good. Um, but that's what you get, you know. Um, you want books or personality? You pick, okay. Um, then these next two, um, these, these Wesley Hill and Rachel Gilson are both uh, same-sex attracted. They would say that they're, they're primarily attracted to the same sex, uh, but they have submitted themselves to the biblical sexual ethic or the historic view of, of sexuality, and they just tell their story. Rachel, you might remember four years ago, um, spoke here and, and shared her story, and it was really, really helpful. And the sixth thing, the sixth uh, disclaimer I want to make as I launch into this is that it's important to understand your filters. This is really a disclaimer for you. It's important that you understand your filters when you come to a place of what you feel about any one topic. And I want you to know that there are some big, big things that affect your theology. It's not just what you think the Bible says. Um, in fact, it for it may even be that the, what the Bible says is not the primary factor in what your theology and theology just means your thoughts on God. It could be experience, it could be background, it could be a, and other things. And one of the big areas that we that have affected all of us, and this has been a, a slow drip for several hundred, three or four hundred years, um, is something called expressive individualism, and it's it got even written into. Uh, the Bill of Rights or Constitution are one of those things um, that you know, we have the right to pursue individual happiness, And that has got us to where we're at in our cultural moment, of like what who I am inside of me must be expressed on the outside of me. And we've all contributed to that. This is not part of the gay agenda. That is a part of the American agenda. That is the culture that you live in. And I would encourage you to give some thought to that. There's a book by. Carl Truman. Uh, He wrote a really big, thick book that I doubt anyone here has read or will read, and certainly not someone like me who, you know, I just have an undergraduate degree from zoo, so I'm not going to read that book. But he, thankfully, he heard my criticism, and he wrote a much smaller book in 2021. It says basically the same thing that I have read, and I would recommend that to you. I don't know the title. I'm sorry. Carl Truman. Look him up. Very helpful book. Um, But the second thing I want to say that's significantly influence all of us is that we are all victims of a culture war that's been going on for 50 years. And if you don't know the history of individualism and its effect on the way that you think about the world, and if you don't know the effect uh, about the culture war that's happening for 50 years and its effect on the way that you think about this, you'll you'll get it wrong. Most of us walk around with a gut instinct When it comes to same-sex relationships. We have a gut instinct on what we think is right and true. It's not necessarily based upon what we know is true. It's what we feel in our gut. And we got here by a violent, bloody cultural war. On one side, you have people who see gay relationships primarily through the lens of injustice. And this happened and got kicked off in 1969 with the Stonewall riots in Grinch Village. And they wanted to move. They wanted to move same-sex relationships from the fringe into normalcy. And in 1970, at the one-year anniversary, that's when the first gay Pride kicked off. But then this group was met with by resistance from another group known as the moral majority, led by a guy named Jerry Falwell. And they saw gay relationships not through the lens of injustice, but through the lens of immorality. And so this is how it was posed. And so he said this: "Someone must not be afraid to say moral perversion is wrong. If we do not act now, homosexuals will own America. If you and I do not speak up now, the homosexual steamroller will literally crush all decent men, women, and children who get in its way. And our nation will pay a terrible price. So that's 60s and 70s, 80s roll in, the AIDS epidemic. Uh, The gay activists slowed in its agenda as they began to care for one another, confused by what was going on. Uh, The moral majority saw this as a victory for their cause and took the opportunity to frame for Americans and Christians in particular what was really going on when he said AIDS is not just God's punishment for homosexuals, it's God's punishment for the society that tolerates homosexuals. In 1998, the gay activists got back on board in what was known as the War Conference and the top 175 leading gay activists developed a strategy and adopted really uh, war language, that's why they call it the war conference, to undertake a carefully calculated public relations campaign to shift the public's focus from homosexual behavior to the idea of gay rights. And uh, they, this was how they described the, their agenda in a book that I know you haven't read called After the Ball. And the reason why I know you haven't read it is because it's $345 on Amazon and you can only get, find it used. It's out of print. But if you want to have at it, but I'll give you some quotes from it. I can, this is what they this is they explain the agenda: a continuous flood of gay-related advertising presented in the least offensive fashion possible. If straights can't shut off the shower, they may at least eventually get used to being wet. The main issue is to talk about gayness until the issue becomes thoroughly tiresome. Seek desensitization and nothing more. If you can get straights to think about homosexuality as just another thing meriting no more than a shrug of the shoulders, then your battle for legal and social rights is virtually won. And then that happened in the 90s. And then the movement really took off steam because of this guy named Tim Gill, who put up his $500 million fortune to take the fight to the next level. But this quote explains why this guy was so controversial. We are going to go to the hardest states and we are going to punish the wicked. Anyone who does not believe in the legitimacy and same-sex relationship is wicked and we are going to punish them. And the amount of money that was spent in the area of marketing, research, lobbying, media, arts, entertainment was lo- nothing less than extraordinary. And they had three major areas uh, of focus. One is the, the field of psychology, to get it removed as a mental disorder. Uh, the field of law, legal protection and rights. And the other field was the church, to remove it as a sin in the eyes of churchgoers. And so they had this this huge attack, and and people who have studied this strategic plan and execution of gay activists have concluded that this is the most successful cultural shift in human history. And I said earlier, there's the other side of the, the moral majority, and they had a rallying cry, and they were a force to be reckoned with, and they fought and won some battles, but ultimately were unsuccessful. And I wanna say two things about this. One is 1 Corinthians 5. For what do I have to do? This is Paul, a pastor. What do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those on the outside. The church, number one, the church fought a battle. It was never meant to fight. Should have never happened. It was catastrophic to the central mission to give witness to the person of Jesus. In other words, the church was a victim of its own fight for culture. And for those that are still on that fight, it's best to get off. Secondly, what you think about same-sex relations... By the way, I'm not try- I didn't try to moralize anything I said before. I'm just trying to paint historical fact. What you think about historical relationships has been formed by the culture war in both directions. Again, most of us walk around with gut instinct. And when- if we are for same-sex relationships, we have this this gut instinct of injustice running through us. And if we, if we think that you know, same-sex relationships are wrong, we have this gut instinct of immorality. But we're not really sure why. As followers of Jesus, as for what the rest of the world thinks, I'll let them think about it. But as followers of Jesus, you and I have to do way better than gut instinct. We need to be clear on what Jesus says, why he says it, and, and really importantly, how he, to interact with people who disagree. So I'm gonna ask you for the next 20 minutes to set aside your cries for morality. And I want you to set aside your cries for justice so that you can have a thoughtful look at what the scriptures actually say because ultimately the Bible is not inviting you to have your sense of morality affirmed. It's not inviting you to have your sense of justice affirmed. It's ultimately inviting you to be rescued, redeemed, and related to by the God of the universe. It's an invitation to gay people. It's an invitation to straight people and everyone on the continuum. And so we're gonna look at this clearly. And I'm just gonna say like, I don't know if you wanna thank me or for this or not, but we're, we're, there are five major passages. We're gonna look at Genesis. We're not gonna look at Leviticus. We're gonna we're look at Romans 1, that's the other passage. And the other two we're not gonna look at is 1 Corinthians uh, 6 and uh, 1 Timothy 1. Um, But like I said, I'm going to do a part two, and I might mention some of those later. So I'm just going to get to what I think is essential to get the foundation of what this is right. And again, I know it's technical. I know there's going to be Greek and Hebrew words, and it's going to feel very matter-of-fact. But I think it's really important to understand this. And then we'll get to some of the, yeah, but what about this, later next week. The question every believer must answer in following Jesus about any issues. Number one is what do I believe? How do I get to that belief? And how does the scripture support my belief? Um, I, I realize there may be some people here who may not see the Bible as their ultimate authority. At Jubilee, we see the Bible as our ultimate authority. And here's why, because Jesus saw it as, his, as an authority. And, and if, you can, if you have the ability to like, predict uh, your own death, burial, and resurrection and have the power to pull it off, I'm just gonna do whatever you say. And so like, that's our deal, that's my deal and you, you do what you wanna do, but we, we, we wanna know what the Bible has to say because Jesus took the Bible seriously. So what is your, so then as it relates to this topic, here are some relevant questions to ask yourself and have good answers to, not gut instinct, good answers. What is your definition of marriage? How did you arrive at that definition? And how do the scriptures support this definition? So what does the Bible have to say? Genesis 2, this is the book of beginnings. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. The NIV translation says you may be more familiar with this, suitable for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. I'm tired of animals, but God, for Adam, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him or suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man for this reason. In light of all this stuff, for this reason, or therefore... Here comes marriage. A a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. This is a poetic account of the creation of the universe, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Suspend your questions about science for at least a week. We'll tackle that later. But what we have here is an introduction to gender in marriage. And this is incredibly important uh, for two reasons. Number one... It's the law first mentioned. Again, this is technical, but when, you come, when you're trying to understand the Bible, one of the, the laws of understanding the Bible is whenever it's first mentioned in the Bible, that becomes the basis for what you believe unless it's contradicted later. So unless something else replaces it. And, and that, there's some examples of that. So like in, a, you guys, football, anybody like football? Yeah. Watch football, a few of us, Okay. Follow me here. So, in about five or six years ago, they gave coaches the ability the ability to challenge a play. Have a little red flag. So, if a play happened, the coaches, I disagree with that play. They would throw the red flag. Umpires get underneath a little hood. They examine the play on video, and they can come to one of three conclusions. Number one, they reverse the call. They see it, and they're like, Oh my gosh, I have video evidence that our call was wrong, and they reverse it. The second thing they can do is they can say it's inconclusive. The call stands. We can't, tell if, we can't tell if it was wrong or right, but the play stands as called on the field. The third thing they can do is they can confirm what happened on the field is what they're seeing on video. That's one of three options. For in, in the 1960s, the progressive view of sexuality, they threw out a red flag. We are challenging the call on the field. They're challenging what Genesis says. Okay. So we have options. Is, did, 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 did the Bible at some point, I'm doing fine, guys, don't worry about me. Um, did the Bible at some point reverse the call? Did, did Jesus, did the New Testament, did they, they come back either under further review, Jesus says, no, that doesn't apply anymore? Is it like inconclusive? Like who could really know for sure what it says? I mean, so many years ago and oh my gosh and da, da, da. Or did they confirm it? I want you to know, I want you to know that the New Testament writers, and I'll explain a little bit this week, and if you want more, I can explain more next week, is they, they, they didn't reverse the call. They didn't even, they, didn't, they weren't even vague about it. But when asked, both Paul and Jesus in particular, very directly, confirmed the call in the field and says the play stands as it is, which is one of the reasons why I call it the historic view Versus the progressive view. One says this, is the, this, was, this was the call in the field. This is the way it's always this has been. And the progressive view has thrown the flag to challenge it. And Jesus and Paul confirms it. And we will get to that here in a bit. But for this, this is why this is so important. Genesis, this is the foundation. This is the call in the field. I want to draw your attention. There's a lot we could talk about. I'm going to draw your attention to one phrase. Helper fit for him. Again, the NIV translates it helper, suitable for him. For those who believe in, in the historic position, uh, what makes Eve suitable is the fact that she is human, she's not an animal, and the fact that she is female, not male. So those two things is what, is what the historic view says. This is what makes Eve suitable for Adam. This is what makes Eve a helper fit for him, this complementarity of relationship. For the progressive Christian, a super A a suitable helper was not necessarily to be a woman, but a human. In other words, the emphasis was not on gender, but on kind. Here, Adam in humanity is naming all these animals, and he's like, oh, where's someone who's like me? He didn't necessarily need a woman. He just needed another human. So essentially, another human can be a suitable marriage partner as long, again, as they're both human, but it doesn't have to be the same gender. This is the progressive challenge. Do they have a point? Well, again, the historic position says that the fact that she's both human and female makes her suitable, and here's why. Hebrew word translated "fit for him" or "suitable," same Greek word is translated is the the, the translated word is kenego, okay, and it's only used here once in the Old Testament. This is this is its original use, its only use. And it's somewhat difficult to translate into English since it's a co- compound word. And I'll, and I'll just say to you what the word means here and you'll see the difficulty of, of translating it. The, the first part of it is key, which means as or like. The second part is naked, which means opposite or against. So together the word means something like this, as opposite him or like against him. This is what the word means. Suitable means as opposite him or like against him. It is a complex word that captures how it is that Eve can qualify as a perfect partner for Adam. So what works in their relationship isn't simply that she is like him, but also that that she's not like him that makes her suitable. So, and this is why this is relevant, because among the, the, the word choices they could have used, um, if it was simply like the fact that she was human and not an animal, he could have just used the word uh, "key." So it could have been; it should have read, "I will make a helper like him. I will make a helper like him. I will make one another one. I'll make another human." But to make the point that Adam just doesn't just need another human, so there's, you know, man Ish, woman Isha, but a different sort of human needing a female. So God uses the word. Canego, I will make a helper fit, Canego, for him. Preston Sprinkle says this, this word conveys both the similarity and the dissimilarity. Eve is a human and not an animal, which is why she is key, like Adam, but she's also female and not a male, which is why she's different than Adam, or naked, opposite him. It's for this reason, okay? It's for this reason, therefore, Marriage, therefore, marriage, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother to hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Because they are male and female, because they are alike and yet different, they shall leave their father and mother, they shall leave their family, and they shall become one. And this word one means to come together uh, sexually. This is what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, or do you not know that he who's joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? And he, and he quotes Genesis, for it is written, the two shall become one flesh. That is why in verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked, were not ashamed, because this is the way God designed it to be. Man and woman together in the covenant of marriage, in that sexual relationship, becoming one flesh, it is, there's no shame in that. So God's design for marriage that would later be referred back to the New Testament writers and Jesus is is why we can have confidence. And again, Jesus does the same thing Paul does in Matthew 19. He affirms or confirms what Genesis set forth. He, Jesus, answered, have you not read that he who created them, that is God, from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, in light of the fact that they're male and female, Like but different. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. One little interesting point that Preston makes about this Genesis he says, It's striking, too, that that the sexual difference of man and woman in Genesis 1 and 2 appears to reflect many other differing pairs embedded in creation. Notice that Genesis 1 ripples with creative display of diversity that complements each other God and creation, light and darkness earth and sky, sun and moon, land and sea, humans and animals. And at the pinnacle of God's creation stands the masterpiece of male and female. God created mankind, male and female, he created them. Creation is not uniform, but a beautiful display of difference, interacting with each other. The coming together of male and female in marital sexual union is the height of creation's astonishing union of otherness. Their likeness and their not likeness are key ingredients to be united in marriage and essential, essential in carrying out the creation mandate to go into all the world and multiply. The biblical definition of therefore, what scripture supports, the definition of marriage, one man, one woman, one life. And so with this established, they move on. I mean, so like I said, he mentions it in, in Leviticus and Leviticus is all about um, holiness. It's, holiness is mentioned 87 times. And it's referring it, God. They, they came out of Egypt. So when Leviticus was being written, they were coming out of Egypt, where they lived 400 years and picked all their customs and ways in Egypt, and they were getting ready to enter a new land in the Promised Land, where they're going to be around other nations the Canaanites and all the otherites. They said, "You're to be different. You're not to be like the other nations of the world. You're set apart to me. I want to remind you of what." I've set forth from the beginning because when I look at Egypt and when I look at the Canaanites and all the other ites of the world, they do sex differently than what I set you out to do. And so here's a list of things that are out of bounds. And he mentions everything except a husband and wife in the, in the in covenant of marriage. And you could read that for yourself or maybe we'll hit it next week. But what about the New Testament? Well, Paul mentions in, in Romans 1:21 through 27, um, He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and the birds and the animals and creepy things. I won't have time to explain all this, but I want you to notice how similar it even sounds to Genesis, and that's not an accident. Therefore, God, he's going to talk about creator creation. God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped the, crea- uh, the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, remember that in Genesis 1, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their woman exchanged natural relations. And that word natural, what they're exchanging there is the truth of God's truth. They exchanged God's truth for, for male and female relationships. Uh, they exchanged them for unnatural ones. They weren't talking, which is a progressive argument. The progressive argument is that, hey, um, those uh, in same-sex relationships are living out their nature. They, they're not, he's not talking about the nature the nature inside of us. Again, we are dominated by individualistic thinking. He's talking about God's nature in creation, which, again, I mean, this this Romans 1 reeks of... Of language from Genesis 1 and 2. And so uh, he goes on, for this reason, unnatural ones are contrary to nature, and the men likewise give up their natural relationships with men and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. Context is really important. Romans 1, Paul is saying, "Here here are the sins of the Gentiles. Gentile is basically anyone who's not a Jew. Here are the sins of the Gentiles. He starts in, in, in Romans 2 and he says, oh, by the way, Jews, my brothers, you're not off the hook. Here's, here's all your sins. And then in Genesis, by Genesis 3, he concludes, you know what? We're all toast. Like we all fall short. We all fall, sh- fall short of the glory of God. All are lost and damned without Jesus. And this is so important because the church has been inconsistent. Nobody is straight. Everybody is bent and broken in need of Jesus there is no hierarchy of sins. There is no different class of saint. There's no different class of sinner. A young uh, pastor theologian from the Phoenix area, he was asked, uh, you know, do you believe in or do you think homosexuality is a sin? He says, I believe American sexuality is a sin and homosexuality is a leaky faucet on that Titanic. And so it's important to get this back in context as we're going through some of this technical stuff, is that sexual immorality in general is um, is, is being, what's being condemned here, and uh, like, man, we have to really understand um, that, yeah, this is an aspect of that, but anything outside of this. So just because you may feel like you're okay in this area, but what I want you to know too to here from this passage is that, you know what, I'm going to... Sk- I'm going to skip this and I'm going to come back I, I may bring this up later because I I want to get to I want to get to um um Jesus. <laughs> I want to get to Jesus. But I will say this that they ex, they exchange the truth of God's what he's saying here they exchange the truth of God's created pattern. Again, looking back, progressive the progressive view throws a challenge flag and says uh this needs to be reversed. And he's saying no. Paul, Jesus affirmed it. Paul is affirming it and saying, "No. They, what's happening here is they exchange the truth of what God set out in marriage. This is the, the way marriage is supposed to be. They exchange that for uh, a lie." And then he goes on and talks about what that is. There's there's a lot of questions about the text, but maybe we'll hit those um, next week. Um, but I, I want to end by fixing our our attention to Jesus because. This is really all about, when I mean really all about, I mean what we're trying to do here. This is really all about Jesus. This is not about the meaning of Hebrew and Greek words. This isn't about who's right and who's wrong. This isn't about stances, positions, and discovering the truth as important as that is. This is about the best news on the planet, which is we were all toast, every single one of us, except for the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who entered our time-space world took on skin and bone, moved into the neighborhood, lived the perfect life, died in our place, and rose to new life so that we can be included in his global eternal family. I just wanna say what Jesus says is what matters, and I want us to see how he relates to people. I want you to see the genius of how Jesus relates to people. To say it's, it's miraculous, that's how I would say it. And because we're leaving here, and we're all maybe on a different map, but maybe we're leaving here and we've got this theology, right? Like, okay, yeah, Brian, you just kind of affirmed what I already thought, or now I'm clear. And we can leave out of here with a certain attitude and a certain position. And I want us to leave here with the attitude of Jesus, because this is critical. How did Jesus do it? Well, I want us to see what Jesus did. So in Matthew 5 through 7, it's a section of teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. We did a series on this last year. And in this teaching, he gives out, okay, this is what my kingdom is like. And he basically takes the, the standard of holiness, and he just ratches it way up. You've heard it said this, but, but I say this. In fact, if, you, if your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. I caused you to sin, gouge it out. And, and specifically when it comes to the sexual ethic, I mean, no one had a higher sexual ethic than Jesus. Not Paul, not Leviticus, not anywhere, not anyone on the planet. In fact, he said this. You say adultery is wrong which was common for, it was a common sin in that culture. So you say adultery is wrong. I say, if you look at a woman lustfully, that's just as bad. It's just like, holy cow. I mean, this guy had like, I mean, the conviction around and the ethic that he called people to. I mean, he was absolutely convinced about what he believes. Can you think, about some, you think about someone that you know that's really convinced about what they believe and they have a high standard for what they believe? Now, don't say their name, but just think about that person. What are they like? Not very nice, usually. You would expect Jesus to come off that mountain holding up signs. This is my code. This is my standard. This is my standard. He walks off that mountain and he does something that almost seems like a paradox to what he taught. First, he, first person he meets, he meets a Roman centurion. Romans were mortal enemies of the Jewish people. And he heals his daughter. He finds a, a woman caught in the act. I say, if you even look at a man lustfully, you've committed, and look what you did. No, he... He shields her from condemnation. He meets a woman um, who is just overdone by the grace that she's received from Jesus. And she begins weeping and washing his feet and anointing him with perfume. There's a lot of cultural things there that we don't understand, but just a huge act of affection. He sees Zacchaeus. A tax collector. He's like, I'm coming to your house today. What he did, he didn't go like, hey, have you, have you heard my Sermon on the Mount podcast? Have you, have you read my position paper on taxation? He's like, but I've got good news for you. I'm coming to your house. And this is how Jesus interacted with people. He had the highest standard, yet sinners loved him. He had this high standard, but he did life with prostitutes, with tax collectors, with gluttons, with drunks, people who weren't like Jesus, like Jesus. He had the bandwidth to be a person of conviction and compassion. So let me just be real frank here. Progressives, you do not have to give up on compassion to hold to conviction of his word. Conservatives, you do not have to give up on conviction of his word to be compassionate. And I would guess there's be one or two people here that have some room to move in one direction or the other. And I'd hope you would take the time to do that this morning. One last word. Ben can come up and you guys can stand. If you are attracted to the same sex and you're here today, um, first of all, there's a medal for you outside in the lobby because um, I want to I mean, you, you're same-sex attracted and you want to live out the biblical sexual ethic. Um, I, I just want to make this commitment that we want to be a place where singles thrive, a place that you can experience family. We want to, be, we want to help all people know God, find family, discover a purpose, and, and make a difference. And um, we want this to be a place where you can experience deep, in meaningful relationships. And I just say, man, shame on the church if it's easier to have a sexual hookup on an app than it is to find community. And there are ways that we as a church need to practically get better. And the the litmus test of living in the community that Jesus commanded, just as He commanded no to this and yes to this, to love one another, to love your enemy, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. You will be marked as mine by the love that you have for each other. Jesus was 100% grace, 100% truth. He wasn't a balance of the two. He wasn't 50-50. He was 100% truth, and He was 100% grace. I'll let you figure out your own percentages. But secondly, I want to say to those who are same-sex attracted, wanting to live out the biblical sexual ethic, I just, you're my hero. And I want to say that not only is there a place for you, but I want you to know that I think that we have a lot to learn about discipleship from you, on what it really means to pick up your cross and follow him. Because that's something we're all called to do. And it shouldn't feel any harder for you than it does for anyone else. But I know that it does. And I'm sorry for that example that you've been given. You have experienced at greater levels the the ultimate form of love, which isn't sexual, but it's sacrificial. Jesus, we are so undone by you and your love for us. We are all in the same place. The billions of people who ever walked the face of this earth are in the same place except one. And God, I pray for the humility to walk life out as disciples of you, holding on to truth, holding on to conviction, and pursuing people with compassion and grace.